Welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast with your host, Michael Sherlock. We all have potential, but sometimes we need inspiration to get us to our peak performance. Whether you are starting out in your career, ready to move up the corporate ladder, or taking the leap into entrepreneurship, Michael's guests provide powerful tools and resources to shock your potential. Shock Your Potential is a global professional development training company committed to your unique journey. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and download our free Shock Your Potential app today. Listen in to today's expert. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. I am your host, Michael Sherlock, and all month long we're going back to school. You know that that means grab your backpack, grab your lunchbox, let's go learn something. So obviously all of my guests are here to help us learn something to be better personally, professionally, as business owners. And uh, my guest today, his story is going to be very compelling. And from that, I can tell that he not only has made many changes and growth opportunities in his life, but that that's how he really helps others to shock their potential. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Fleet Mall is a PhD and an author. He's a renowned growth mindset teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world, both in person and now, as we all know, online through the Heart Mind Institute. He's a meditation teacher, an executive coach, a seminar leader, and a social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social transformation. Now, let me tell you a little bit about his background because this is going to be very interesting for all of us. He founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association, catalyzing two national movements. And he did this all while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Mall developed the radical responsibility empowerment model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face. Wow, you know what that means, you guys? That means that we're looking in the mirror all the time, free of blaming oneself or others. And when we do that, we find a lot more clarity. But let me just hit a couple other highlights. Fleet is also a Roshi, which is a Zen master in the International Zen Peacemaker Order and a senior Dharma teacher in the global Shambhala meditation community. He's also the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Our Higher Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for the good of the world. So Dr. Fleet, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here, Michael. Yeah, I hit the highlights of your bio, but tell us a little bit more about you, your story, and how you really help people to shock their own potential. Yeah, I have kind of an unusual story in that I did spend 14 years in a maximum security federal prison on drug charges from 1985 to 1999. Uh, not something I'm proud of at all, and, and especially the activities that got me there. Uh, but I do feel really good about what I did with my time while I was there. I was fortunate in that I had a lot of skills and training and education before I went to prison, which kind of begs the question of why I ended up there. But suffice to say, I was pretty thick-headed and one of those baby boomers completely caught up in the whole counterculture era and all of that. And, uh, you know, I had my demons from childhood and a, a big hole in my gut. I was trying to fill with anything I could from you know, various family issues growing up and so forth. Um, but anyway, I remember my way into that uh, federal prison time. And um, but when I got there or even once I was arrested and convicted, 
uh, it was a huge wake up call, obviously, and especially because my son was nine years old at the time, and I realized he was now going to grow up without a dad. In fact, I was originally sentenced to 30 years with no parole, and I was 35, so I thought I'd be. I thought my life was pretty much over. The paper the next day said I'd be 65 before I have any chance of release. It took me a while, actually, being in prison for a while, till I kind of figured out the legalities of it. And it turned out, since I was sentenced under the old laws prior to 1987, there was actually a lot of good time. If I stayed out of trable, I would have served on that uh, 30 year sentence, 18 and a half years. And then uh, my appeal took about three years to go through the courts and they, they dropped one count uh, from, my, from the appeal, they threw one out. And so that was 20, left me with 25 and on that, then I would serve 14. 14 and a half, which is what I did serve. I did manage to stay out of trouble, fortunately, uh, which is not easy to do when you're in prison, actually. And uh, but at any rate, uh, when I went in, you know, I, I had a master's degree and, and a very intense clinical tra- three year clinical training program. Uh, I'd already been trained as a meditation teacher and a Buddhist teacher for 10 years. I've been practicing meditation for 15 years. So I had a strong background and uh, and I was so devastated over what I, you know, done to myself and my family and especially my son that I just became radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and and use what I, the good I'd received and try and do something meaningful, something good and leave a better legacy for my son than just a dad went to prison or his dad even died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive my time. Oh. And um, so I was, I was really dedicated. I, I lived this very um, disciplined life of a prison monk, uh, both uh, you know, getting up at four or five in the morning and practicing intensively. I had a day job. I taught school in the prison school for 14 years. Uh, I helped start the first hospice program anywhere in the world that we know of inside a prison and uh, and taught meditation, very involved in 12-step recovery work and so forth. And, and uh, just very engaged in the life of that prison and serving that community. And at the same time, spending many hours a day in meditation and study. So it was with my monastery time, my ashram time, or, you know, this time of very intensive study and practice. And it was an incredibly transformative journey. And I really had nothing but opportunity ever since I got out. And the radical responsibility model that you uh, mentioned really was birthed in there, because when I arrived there, I realized that it was an incredibly negative environment and that everyone had their own victim story of one kind or another. And, you know, even though society perceives people who are in prison as the perpetrators, right, they all feel victimized by their own lives, by being over prosecuted in many cases. So they feel their lawyer screwed them over, their fall partner screwed them over, and they've all got a big victim. And quite natural because they're being buried under a mountain of shame and guilt, which the whole, you know, criminal justice process does to people. Um, and so you naturally just trying to survive, you know, you, you, you tend to armor up with your own story and also with anger and bitterness. And unfortunately that prevents us from accessing the actual genuine regret and remorse for any harm we've created that really does fuel the journey of transformation. And I was very fortunate that I had the resources to do that, but it was really clear to me that I didn't want to end up coming out of prison, broken, angry, and bitter. And I didn't want to live that way when I was in there. And so I realized that the only way through and out for me was to really embrace 200% responsibility for having got myself in there, what I was going to do with my time there, and what I would be able to create for myself if I was ever able to uh, get beyond the prison journey. And I use that, that really how I was able to start 
a couple of national organizations of movement from inside prison, which you're not supposed to be able to do. If you ask permission to do any of that, they would say no. I never, I didn't hide it, but you know, I didn't go ask permission either. And they didn't stop me until it was already full blown. At one point, I remember being called in because I was getting interviewed by uh, CBS and this warden, associate warden called me and he goes, how did all this happen? What what the hell has been going on here? I said, I don't know, boss. You know, I just, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, you know, I, I really appreciated my first Buddhist teacher. I really emphasize, you know, what's skillful and what's beneficial. Not so much getting, not there's, there's not right and wrong. There is obviously, but not getting so much caught up in right and wrong and blame and justice and just, but rather focusing on what's skillful, what actually creates benefit and what creates harm and how to work with people. So working with people in that way, I was able to accomplish a lot of things in that environment. And I stepped out of prison and into a career as a management consultant and executive coach, uh, leading turnarounds and, and, and transformative change processes in business. And, you know, how coming out, out of prison, how, you know, how, where did I get my training to do that? I mean, I did have a background with family business growing up, but really it was my time in prison that trained me how to work with people, how to be skillful, even in the most challenging situations, in situations where you have absolutely no power uh, at all. And, you know, I mean, this is a maximum security prison, which sociologists call a total institution, which means that resistance is futile, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you buck the system there, you're in poor point restraints on a concrete bunket and hose down at night, pump full of hell at all, right? Literally. So how do you, when you actually have no positional power, how do you get things done? Well, you do that by really relating to people and by being really skillful and also not wasting time and energy on blame, but just focusing on what can I do? What's the most creative thing I can do here to move forward in a mutually beneficial way with, with other people? So the radical responsibility model was really born there. Oh my gosh, please. There's so many, I can't even tell you how many notes I've taken so far. I mean, your message is incredible. First of all, um, I, when you talked about, you know, um, inmates armoring up, you know, that sense of, you know, the only thing I have to protect myself is my story or my, you know, decision to blame because I'm otherwise I have to face all the things maybe that I've done or the bad choices that I've made. And I think that, you know, it, that relates to all of us in our everyday lives too. You know, we can get so caught up in, mistakes we've made, things we've done wrong, uh, hurts that have been given to us. But when you do that, you just go into a shell, you can't grow. You know, that armor, it will protect you in, in one sense, but it won't allow you to expand. And that's such an incredible um, position versus, you know, your concept of what is skillful and how do I manage and navigate through things where maybe I don't have power, but I do have power. I just don't, maybe I haven't seen it that way, but I maybe have power over myself, even exactly. if I don't feel like I have other power. That's so, that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, we all go through that. Absolutely. And it's a universal situation for people in prison. They also have, besides the internal landscape of, you know, not wanting to face our stuff and all the pain of facing that, they have society projecting, you know, all this guilt and demonization onto them because what we don't want to deal with ourselves, we project onto others, right? And so that's yeah. kind of the shadow aspect of the whole criminal justice system. So uh, it's a really tough place to be in. But, you know, uh, there's a, in psychology, there's a term called the pain paradox. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our natural instinct is to withdraw from pain to avoid pain. We're pretty much hardwired to chase pleasure and comfort and avoid discomfort and pain. But we all know through many, many disciplines historically, across culturally and through modern psychology and everything that transformation is on the other side of pain. We need to move through pain and face pain and, and you know, go through it. 
and really all the joy and transformation and possibilities on life are on the other side of it, really embracing whatever we need to embrace in our life. And, and it can be a rough journey, but it is transformative and incredibly powerful. And, and a place where we do actually always have power is with ourselves. Uh, embracing self-agency and, you know, what am I going to do with the situations I'm in? You know, the thing that's so radical about radical responsibility is that it's the idea of embracing each and every circumstance we face in life, which includes all the ones we can see we had something to do with, which are a lot of them, right? You can see some way that I maybe even created it or, or contributed to it at least, or uh, I allowed it to happen by not paying attention or not standing up for myself, not having good boundaries, or, you know, maybe I'm promoting it subconsciously. I've got some self-sabotage scripts going on or other life scripts that I'm kind of setting myself up. So with a lot of what happens in life, we can see we do have some role to play. And we look at that not for the purpose of blaming ourselves at all, but simply right. for learning. Because once right. I see how it works and how I got from point A to B to C, I can make different choices in the future and get different results. But then there are also situations and circumstances that we, we may just feel we had nothing to do with. And everyone would agree. It just fell out of the sky and landed on our head, right? And those yes. things may be incredibly unjust and you know, horrific things happen to people. And at some point for each of us individual, this is not about telling other people what to do, but for ourselves, at some point the salient question is, what am I going to do with this, right? Am I going to let it take me down or am I going to find some way to find my research? It may involve getting hope. I, I may need to get support and validation from people, people that I was victimized in some way. I may need to get a lot of support, but at some point, you know, is a question, what am I going to do? What am I going to, it's in my life right now. Maybe it shouldn't be in anybody's life, but here it is. Am I going to let it take me down or am I going to find some creative way to respond to it, transform it and move forward in my life? So it's that radical idea. And, and one thing that makes it so difficult for people to embrace this, or even when I, when I talk about this, some people struggle and want to argue about, you know, taking it to that level because there's always other circumstances and there's other causes. And yes, there are, but we can't control those things. And, you know, we do over time all want to work to make the world as fair and just as we can and level the playing field as much as we can for everyone. And it's never going to be perfect. Right. But the part that we actually have control over in the moment, and that's hard enough, is ourselves, right? And but most of us associate things like responsibility and accountability with blame. We've all been enculturated in this culture of shame and blame. And so, you know, we naturally deflect blame because you know, we, we think if something happens, somebody's got to take the blame, right? And <laughs> yeah. and I don't want to take any more blame in my life. I experienced much, enough blame and shame in my life, so I'm just going to naturally, almost instinctually deflect the blame somewhere else. The problem is in doing it, it's very understandable, it's a human condition. We shouldn't feel bad about it, but the problem is we give our power away. Because right. if I'm really convinced my internal state, I'm unhappy, I'm upset, I'm this suffering, and the cause is out there, someone or something, I just gave that person or situation complete power over my internal state because Absolutely. I don't get to have a different experience until they change and I can't control that. So <laughs> exactly. instead focusing, focusing on this has nothing to do with self-blame. It's certainly not about blaming others and it's not about blaming victims either. It's simply about focusing my energy where it can do the most good and embracing my own capacity for creative response to life and, and doing the best I can with that. Right. And like you said, you know, we all have choices. We all have choices every moment. What we do with them tells a story. And I know we're going to have to take a quick break in a minute to hear from our sponsor, but 
Um, I just wanted to ask you also about, you know, this movement that you started with meditation with prison inmates. I think we're in such a great time of the world where meditation and mindfulness is really something that people discuss now. It's not woo woo. It's not, you know, it's not all about incense. It's about really um, gaining some more peace within each one of us. How did that come about? And what did you see others really embrace it that might have been in that victim mode before or that armor on? Yeah, absolutely. Well, while I was in prison, I just really focused on my own practice and really modeling it in terms of who I was. I wasn't preaching anything or anything, and people just became attracted to it. And I had a group that met twice a week in the chapel, and people would just show up. I trained a lot of people uh, over those years. And then at some point early on, I also started corresponding with other prisoners. Uh, people were sending letters to me because I was I was publishing some articles, and people kind of knew about me, this prison monk. And so I ended up corresponding with some prisons. I couldn't correspond with other federal prisons, but I could kind of do it with state and county jail prisoners. And I realized it was a much bigger thing than I could do. So that's when I started Prison Dharma Network, which is primarily now known as Prison Mindfulness Institute. And today that's a thriving organization. We have a program called Path of Freedom, which is a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training program for prisoners. That's in 21 states and seven countries. Um, we're now working for the last 12 years. We've also been working with correctional officers, probation and parole officers, police, U.S. Border Patrol, uh, sheriff's offices, judges, prosecutors, public defenders. We have a division called Mindfulness and Public Safety, and we have a big summit coming up in October where we hope to, you know, enroll 50, 60, 70,000 first responders. Uh, and we're offering a free summit uh, with some of the top trainers from police, fire, rescue, corrections. And, uh, and emergency services. So, you know, we've really got involved in the whole criminal justice and public safety system. That really all grew out of, you know, being in a prison cell and saying, what can I do? What can I do to transform myself? And what can I do to bring value to the world? And keeping that focus razor sharp. And so today, you know, it's a thriving nonprofit organization that's doing great work around the world. And that's really just one part of my life. I also have my whole for-profit business uh, where I am, you know, putting also putting on summits and offering lots of uh, online courses and online challenges that are basically in the realm of, of an integration of mindset teaching, growth mindset, and mindfulness training, mind training, self-regulation training, and so forth. Oh, Fleet, you're very inspirational. I'm just really impressed. And I think that, you know, especially the work with all the people in that sector, you want to talk about something that can help change an entire system where we have broken elements, that's a path not only to freedom, that's a path to a whole new way for us to operate as a society. I love yeah, it. Absolutely. And there's, uh, it's amazing how many of our presenters, and this isn't by design, I mean, I knew it, but many of our law enforcement presenters will be including mindfulness in their presentations. It really has gone mainstream, even in the world of public safety and criminal justice. And, uh, and it's because it's simple and it works, it's becoming kind of a no brainer. Like, and, and it's moving into K through 12 education, thank goodness, because, you know, most of us growing up, we nobody taught us anything about how to navigate the most complex system in the known universe, the human brain and nervous system. And we didn't get much training on how to communicate with others. And what could be more important in terms of getting our needs met in mutually beneficial ways as human beings, right? So mindfulness and emotional intelligence training, all these things are, are just kind of a basic toolkit for life. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. Have you ever considered hiring a virtual assistant, but didn't know where to start? Let Kukua Biz help. Kukua Biz matches talented professionals from Kenya with small businesses around the globe. 
Affordable weekly rates allow you to have a dedicated full-time staff member to help you with anything from administrative tasks, social media management, public relations, and more. Go to kukuabiz.com today for more information or email info at kukuabiz.com. Kukuabiz, that's K-U-K-U-A-B-I-Z dot com. And we are speaking with Dr. Fleet Mall. Um, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed by the things that you're doing. It just gives me a lot of hope. You know, a lot of hope that we continue to evolve as human beings and that our systems continue to evolve. And I think that's so important. And you know that this month I've asked all my guests to teach us something and you've taught us a lot already, but you know, what can you teach us specifically that will help us each to be a better human, a better, you know, better personally, professionally in our businesses? How can your lessons help all of us as well? I think I'd like to share something about basic self-regulation because for me, it all starts there. Because if we don't take ownership for physiological, emotional self-regulation, then who, who's in charge of us? It's the world around us, right? We all have our childhood conditioning that we got before we had anything to say about it. And we kind of live in the interface between that and the world around us. And sometimes that's not such a great ride. And, but we don't have to just be mechanically and mindlessly in that space. We can actually take ownership for self-regulation. And I'm gonna teach a real simple school uh, skill for that just as background uh, many people may already be aware of this, but in terms of the basic physiology, we have something called the autonomic nervous system that operates almost all of this very complex organism, the human brain and nervous system and body. And it has two branches, the sympathetic branch which upregulates, that's alertness, and then beyond alertness into stress and fight or flight. And we have the parasympathetic branch, which downregulates, which is about relaxation and then into rest and recovery. And they're both happening all the time. And obviously when we're trying to get a good night's nice rest, we want mostly parasympathetic activation, very limited sympathetic. When we're needing to be alert at work, we need more sympathetic, responding to a crisis even more. But the problem is in modern life, most of us have way too much sympathetic activation, that's called stress. And we live up in the stress zone and we never get down into the recovery zone or don't get there enough. And we don't even realize it because we adapt to whatever we're used to, right? So. You could, I could ask you, are you stressed today? And you say, no, I feel fine because you're used to it. But if we gave you a blood test, we'd see you have way too much cortisol, noradrenaline, adrenaline in your bloodstream, right? Because we've all adapted and gotten used to, even addicted to living up in the stress zone. And over time, that's the source of all the chronic stress-related illnesses. They have our healthcare system and breakdown, as well as just really diminishing the quality of life altogether and having the world be more in charge of us than we are in charge of ourselves. So- a simple skill that you can learn, there's many, but one I'm going to do today is called straw breathing because our autonomic service system, these two branches, the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic branch are connected with the breath. When we breathe in, there's a slight sympathetic activation. When we breathe out, slight parasympathetic activation. So normally when we breathe in, our heart rate accelerates a little bit. When we breathe out, it decelerates. That's why when you have a good stress response, you have something called heart rate variability. Your heart rate is not consistent. It, it's wave-like. And, and that's an indicator of a good stress response. But many of us breathe shallowly and too much in-breath and not enough out-breath. And that's a stress response. And so our heart rate flattens out. We have poor heart rate variability, right? Mm. So at any rate, going to teach something called straw breathing here, which can just be a lifesaver. It's so simple. Anyone can learn it and can absolutely be a lifesaver. So here's how you do it. So I'm going to ask everyone to just go ahead and do this with me. So you breathe in through the nose with your mouth closed. 
and then you breathe out through, through pursed lips as if you're blowing through a straw or whistling. You can't actually do this with a physical straw and it's harder to blow out through a straw. So that does some things in terms of conditioning the breath, some things with nitrous dioxide levels and so forth, but you can do it just with pursed lips. So in through the nose, out through pursed lips. So just keep breathing like that. Then the second part of it is that we want the out breath to be twice as long as the in breath. So we'll, we'll count to do that. And counting help keep, helps keep us on track. So I'm gonna start and I'll just count for a few cycles and then we'll do it on our own for like a minute if we have that much time. Sure. And um, so take an out breath, kind of get ready because we're gonna start with an in breath. So go ahead and take a good out breath, all right? In, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, in, two, three, four, out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So just continue in that way, doing your own counting, breathing in through the nose with the mouth closed, out through pursed lips, using the counting to assure that the out breath is twice as long as the in breath. So let's just do that in silence for a minute. So you probably notice your nervous system kind of slowing down, chilling out, calmer, clearer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yes. So this is called straw breathing and it never fails. It directly engages the parasympathetic response. And so if we're feeling too agitated, straw breathing will bring us right down. Before the pandemic, I was a road warrior traveling every week in and out of airports all the time, a lot of white knuckle drives to the airport. And I do straw breathing the whole way. And it keeps me calm and well-regulated. I usually make my flight going through security, stay calm and well-regulated. We all know what a hassle that is. And I do it all the time. I do it when I'm working. Like sometimes I deliver trainings, again, pre-tambidemic, but in person I was leading trainings that are 10, 12 hours a day. And I'm doing various kinds of breath regulation throughout the day. And at the end of the day, I'm not exhausted. In fact, I'm ready to go. I could just keep going, right? Because I do that. And instead of fueling myself in other ways, I eat you know, nutritiously and I do a lot of breath regulation. One more thing that people can easily add to that. And you can find all about this on the web. Just, you know, just look up in your search engine, uh, straw breathing, or another one that a lot of people know is called 478 breathing, it was popularized by the holistic physician Andrew Weil. So it's the exact same thing as straw breathing. You breathe in at four count and then you hold for a seven count. Yeah. And then you breathe out for the eight count. So you just add in the middle of that hold for the seven count. And that gives you an oxygen boost. So it's called 478 breathing. Also with the straw breathing, it could be in four out eight, or it could be in five out 10, whatever you feel comfortable with. There's no reason to be ambitious, but as you slow down, the breath may extend more. So, you know, but the mm -hmm. basic idea is in through the nose, out through pursed lips, out breath twice as long as the in breath. It's a resilience tool. Over time, it'll build your resilience, but it's an immediate tool that in the moment, you can get yourself back in your body, get yourself untriggered from the reptilian brain, regain access to the entire brain, and put yourself back in the driver's seat of your own life, just like that. It's amazing too, because you're right. And I do a lot of breathing. I always refer to Yoga Dog. He's my reminder <clears throat> that, uh, you know, to stop and breathe often. But, um, you know, when you first start it, it even though the count of four in breath is not easy. 
And then, you know, so it takes a couple of yeah. times before your body starts to not go, wait, I'm going to run out of breath. And, you know, and, yeah. and as you do it more and your body responds more, it's amazing how much simpler it is. Absolutely. We just start where we are. It could be in one out two or in two out four, yeah. whatever you can do. And the other thing that's really helpful, a lot of us as a stress response have become chest breathers. We breathe vertically up and down like this and use these muscles here and reteaching ourselves to relax and to being belly breathers, diaphragmatic breathers, where the diaphragm is doing the work. And instead of breathing vertically, we're breathing laterally. The rib cage is opening up laterally and the belly, when we breathe in, the belly goes out because the diaphragm muscle is pushing down, right? And, you know, any of us who are parents, we remember our, when our child was an infant in the crib, how do they breathe? You see that belly going up and down. If you have a dog or cat at home taking a nap on the living room rug, belly going up and down. That's the normal way of breathing. And in that way, we get sufficient oxygen into the lower part of our lungs where the blood oxygen exchange primarily happens, right? And you can easily do that uh, when you go to sleep every night. When you're laying in bed, put one hand on chest, one hand on belly, move around till you, you know, get in that position, usually how you're holding your pelvis, that the belly's going up and down. This one's fairly still. You do that, you'll fall asleep more easily, you'll get a better night's sleep. And with a few weeks or a few months, you'll become a default belly breather again, because we have neural pathways that support being a belly breather, because that is the default mode of breathing. But so many people have become chest breathers, and, it, and it's very detrimental to our health in the long run. Yeah, and I don't even think about it, because I was a singer all my life. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was just how I was trained. And so it, it seems natural to me. But I know that I've, as I've talked to other people, that's one of the things that they um, in the beginning, struggle with is that change from the chest breathing to the diaphragm. Um, and once they get there, they're like, hey, this is so much easier on my body. But you're right. We don't always do what's best for us. <laughs> well, I love it. We're going to have all of your contact information on our show notes. But just in case somebody wants to look you up right now, because they can't wait to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to find you? Well, a couple of places, just fleetmall.com is one place to start. That's my basic web website, fleetmall.com. And then for all my online learning opportunities, uh, heartmindinstitute.co, heartmindinstitute.co. And uh, especially for your audience, we have an amazing summit coming up. It runs every January. It's a 10-day summit called The Best Year of Your Life. And it's all about kickstarting our year and up-leveling up any domains of our life that are important to us, whether it's our personal health and well-being, financial health and well-being, our relationships, our spiritual journey, uh, career, business, whatever it is. And we bring in some of the most fabulous trainers and teachers in the world for this 10-day summit. And the last year's summit is still up there. People can actually see it or, or get the uh, resource package, but that's where you'll find next year's summit as well. And it's just bestyear.life, bestyear.life. Love it, bestyear.life. Excellent. Fleet, well, before we go, do you have any last words of wisdom or pearls of advice for my listeners and viewers? Well, you know, this idea of radical responsibility is not a new idea. It's been around for a long time. Marcus Aurelius is sometimes referred to as the last good Roman emperor. He was one of the Stoic philosophers. And he, there's a whole book of his aphorisms, which is highly recommended. Uh, but one, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, uh, he said something to the effect that uh, most people feel their destiny is determined by their circumstances. But in fact, that's not the case. Our destiny is determined by our response to those circumstances. And even being able to respond to circumstances rather than being in just our conditioned reactivity. You know, most of us walk, think we're walking around thinking we're autonomous, free thinking adults, making autonomous adult decisions all day long. If only that were true. We're, high, we're very habituated, we're highly mechanical. And so we really need to embrace some practices to become more wakeful, more present, 
so that we can be in a responsive relational mode to life instead of a reactive survival mode. And so learning something like mindfulness and then embracing this idea of living our lives more in the driver's seat of our own life by focusing on the this one simple question will transform any circumstance. And it's just simply, what can I do? Hmm. I love what it. What can I do? No matter how bad the situation is, what can I do? Because that puts me right back in the mind of solution-based thinking. There's always a million different things we can do, right? Absolutely. I love it. Please, thank you so much for not only sharing your story with us, but sharing your lessons. I think it's incredibly inspirational. And I know that my audience will absolutely have incredible takeaways. Thank you so much for being my guest today. You're very welcome, Michael. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Shock Your Potential podcast. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com, including details on Michael's two best-selling books. Tell me more, how to ask the right questions and get the most out of your employees, and sales mixology, why the most potent sales and customer experiences follow a recipe for success. Make sure to check out our Shock Your Potential app, on-demand professional training resources to help you excel in your career. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like us today.